you guys are okay if I take this off, right? Yeah. Good, because my glasses fog up and I won't be able to read anything that I wrote. So, um, I gotta time myself, because if I don't, David Hill's gonna yank me out of here. Nah. Yeah. All day. It's, uh, it's nice to be back together in person. I know it's you know, setting up and we're a little bit late and behind, just getting used to things again. Um, and I thank you for the introduction. It's humbling to be here. It's humbling to be asked to speak. Um, just on a side note, real quick, it's not like in my notes, but I kind of strayed away from Ironman for a little bit. And I came back last fall. And literally, the first time I came back, there was a lot of different reasons. It wasn't just timing or scheduling. But the first time I came back, I was at a Connect. And David Hill pulled me aside and asked me if I would speak this year. And it was like instant, instant confirmation from God that that's where I needed to be. Um, so I've been back ever since, and I'm, I'm glad I've been back. And it's been humbling. Um, I'm stoked to be back here in person live to see all these faces. It's been amazing. The first responders went rogue early on, and we were meeting at Dave's house. Um, so don't tell the authorities because the statute of limitations is up. Um, and I'm honored to be the first speaker that's been live at coffee since February. February, right? That was the last one? Um, feels like forever in a day, right? So for all you new guys that are kind of come on during COVID, welcome. Um, I hope you stick with it and stay with it and don't stray away from it. I want to thank David Hill for giving me an opportunity and, and trusting me with his ministry for those next 30, 35 minutes. I hope you don't regret it, bro. <laughs> I thank Dave Ogden for not only the kind words, but for being a good friend. Interestingly enough, Dave was my, when I started the sheriff's office, when I came down here to Florida, Dave was my first boss. I never set eyes on him. We never met each other, because I worked nights, he worked days, he was my captain. Um, we became friends later on, years later. Um, so it's kind of interesting the way that all works out. I'd also like to thank Dave and Doc both for walking with me at various points and various ways over the last few years, uh, helping me navigate some serious self-inflicted wounds that, for those of you that are around for the August Connect, kind of heard about that. Um, so thank you guys for that. And I want to thank my wife, Cheryl. Uh, don't know if she's watching or taking care of the kids right now, but without her, I wouldn't be the man that I am, without a doubt. She is an amazing woman of God. She is my biggest cheerleader and she is my biggest support system. And I let her listen to this and do my run, my dry run through and everything's changed. <laughs> so, she is honest with me and she was exactly right. And it was confirmed when the guys were praying for me uh, a little while ago. Um, and it, it, was, it was less of me and more uh, studying. So I'm glad that she, she did that. Um, I also want to thank God, so if you don't mind, Lord, thank you for continuing to use me. I pray, Lord, that you take this broken, battered vessel and in this moment, make me an honored vessel so that your words come out of my mouth. And I pray, Lord, that they would fall on the tilt soil of the hearts that you want to touch this morning. I thank you, Lord, in the holy name of your son, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You guys ever overthink anything? That's what I did with this. For 14 months, I overthought this thing. For the last 14 months, ever since David Hill asked me, I, every time I heard something about trust, I thought it was a nugget that God was giving me, and I'd write it down. <clears throat> and I thought, surely that's for the talk. Problem is, I had a pile of schizophrenic notes throughout the 14 months, and I couldn't make order out of it. And I tried, and the reality is, it was in part because I was intimidated by the speakers that have been up here before. When I looked at that long list, it's an amazing list of accomplishment. 
and I don't feel worthy. To be included in that. So I kind of overthought things. I literally studied, analyzed, and researched trust to death. And I had a whole bunch of information, but I had no room for testimony. And my wife kind of bore that out. Uh, a little room for application of trust. It was all about the knowledge of trust. And that's why God's word is also. We can be filled with the knowledge of God and his word, but if we never apply it to our lives, it's absolutely useless. And we're never going to win anybody to Christ that way. So, again, it got confirmed this morning in that back room there about uh, testimony. One of the only things that I wanted to hold on to that I kind of came across that I, that I researched was trust in Hebrew. And I, I don't know if I'm going to get the right phlegm voice. Randy, where are you? you got to let me know if I got it right. Uh, it's, the, the word is betach, which is a trust in God. And there's three letters that make it up. It's bet, tet, and het. <laughs> spelled chet, but it's pronounced het. Uh, and the interesting thing that stuck with me is that bet means inside, to rest or to abide in. And tet is wrapped or swaddled. And chet is het. There's a fence or a wall surrounding and protecting. And when you put all those together, it, it gives you a picture of when we rest in God, he wraps his arms around, around us and he swallows us and he protects us. And I, I think that's an amazing picture. And that's the only thing that I wanted to keep out of what I originally had pretty much. Uh, trust, as Dave was talking, played a major role in a lot of the high risk, um, high stakes jobs that I've had. When I was a Marine, I trusted my Marine buddies that they would have my six. I trusted that if necessary, they would die for me. If I got hurt, I trusted that they would take me out of the hot zone. And that ultimately they gave me home. When I was a cop, I trusted my partner would have my back. I trusted that when we were on the front lines of chaos during protests and riots, that my partner would hold a line with me. I trusted they would take a bullet for me and he would see the things that I missed. As a fireman, I trusted my fellow firefighters to be on time. Not necessarily to show up to work on time, although you know when you're waiting for relief, it's good to get that early relief. But more so, I trusted them at a fire scene. I trusted them to do their job when they needed to do their job, when they were supposed to do their job. Because at a fire scene, it's just choreographed chaos. And we don't get a chance to see each other. Somebody's in the back of the building, somebody's on the roof, somebody's in front of the building. We all have to do our jobs at certain times. So I trusted that they would do it at the right time so that I wouldn't get hurt, and in turn, I wouldn't hurt them. I also trusted that we would go into the fire building together and we would come out together. And that if something did go wrong, that they would bring me out no matter what, at any cost. And we did that after 9-11. When the city wanted to go to a scoop and dump operation, at a certain point, we held a line, we pushed back against the city, and we recovered every last body that we possibly could from that scene. All of these professions are trusted by society for protection, order, and safety. And in turn, they, they trust society for security, respect, and support, and also for the authority to operate. The best job I ever had, sorry guys, firefighter. Mm -hmm. Absolute hand down, hands down best job. You guys know it's true. <laughs> I, got to, I got to sleep good, I got to eat good, and everybody loved me. The hardest job I ever had, hands down, was a cop. And that's never been more so than today. Um, I am not frontline first responder anymore. I'm old, fat, and retired. 
Um, so I give you guys credit that are that the ones that are out there doing the job today, because I'm not sure that I could do it. Um, certainly couldn't do it the same way I used to. I think a lot of things have changed. All military responders put their lives online every day, but cops have unique attributes that the others don't. Trust doesn't keep a cop alive. Dave uh, uh, kind of touched on this. Trust doesn't keep a cop alive, distrust does. Cops look at everybody and everything with distrust so that they stack the odds in their favor. And that exacts a negative emotional toll over the course of their careers. Law enforcement is the only profession where you're expected to do a complete 180, virtually impossible, where in one minute, well, put it this way, as a Marine, I was trained to kill the enemy. If I ever went to battle, kill the enemy, and usually it was from far away. As a firefighter, I was trained to save a life, whether that's in a fire, or whether that's a medical emergency. As a cop, this kind of dawned on me a few years ago, I was trained to stop the threat using deadly physical force if, if necessary. And in the next instant, after the threat was stopped, I was expected to save that life and do everything I could to save that life. And turn on a dime like that. It's almost impossible to do. But yet we call on our, our men and women in law enforcement to do that every day. But we don't give them the grace when they don't do it exactly the way we expect them to. It's also the only job to be second-guessed for months and years after that split-second decision. It's also the only one where you go from here to zero in a heartbeat. Think about the beginning of this year when COVID first hit, how we held up police officers and other first responders because they're on the front lines of COVID. Rightfully so, until George Floyd happened. <coughs> then all of a sudden, they were worthless and vilified. Cops find it hard to trust society today because there are constant calls to defund. They're painted with the broad brush of the actions of a few bad actors. There's politicians, lying politicians, endlessly spewing politically motiv motivated rhetoric. Their retirement medical benefits are constantly being stripped away. And there's no due process anymore. Cops are immediately judged guilty in a court of public opinion without any facts whatsoever. Us public safety types will trust each other with our lives, without a doubt. But we're not so good at trusting each other with our personal dysfunctions, our traumas, or our brokenness. We also find it difficult to share Christ with each other. I had no childhood foundation in Christ. Uh, I wasn't exposed to Christ, didn't know Christ, and my family didn't bring me up in the faith. Um, and that turned into agnosticism somewhere along the way. And that, in turn, went to full-on full atheism. I was an atheist for a part of my life. Didn't believe in God, uh, didn't believe he existed. And growing up on the streets of Brooklyn, it kind of helped that you know, kind of take shape. And then when I became a cop, it just solidified it. When I saw the things that humans can do to one another, up close and personal, there was no way that I thought there was a God that would let stuff like that happen. As a cop and fireman, literally the closest I ever came to Jesus was whenever I went to a church for a funeral. After 9-11, that increased exponentially. I was going to funeral after funeral after funeral. But it was all, it really wasn't getting close to Christ. The months before 9-11, in May 2001, I left the police department where I was for nine years and I became a fireman. My wife absolutely hated it. She thought it was more dangerous. And I have to agree with her in certain respects. Um, as a cop, I was able to pull back if I wanted to. As a fireman, you're part of a team, you kind of can't. Again, it choreographed chaos. You have to do your job. Well, other lives depend on it. 
I was assigned to Ten House, which is across the street from the Trade Center, if you don't know. It's right on Liberty Street. Engine 10, ladder 10. It was part of my training rotation. The big joke coming out of the academy from the instructors was that there was no fire duty there. Everything was sprinklered and standpiped. They said that when everybody left home from all the offices down there at 5 o'clock, they would just roll down the doors and everybody would just go, go to sleep. I remember one day driving down Broadway, hanging out the back step of the rig, and somebody was standing on Broadway going like this. And it took me a second to realize that they were actually waving at me because all five fingers were up. I was used to getting the wave, which is one particular finger, when I was in blue and white copper. And that's when it dawned on me. It's like, I'm the same guy, different patch, different color vehicle. But I, I got looked at very differently um, just because of that. I was working the night before 9-11. I was scheduled to work the day after, a 24-hour shift. We got awakened from the racks early that morning for a transformer fire. And we went there, we, stood, we stayed there for a couple hours, waiting for the electrical company to come, open the vault. And then we went back to quarters, and it was just about before roll call. Roll call was at 9 o'clock. So I figured, I was working that day, I'd just have a cup of coffee, read the paper before we did roll call. And I literally just sat down in the house watching a cup of coffee in the newspaper when I heard the plane, the first plane. And it was really low, really loud, and coming in really fast. And I thought it was odd, because I'm in lower Manhattan, and there's a lot of tall buildings there. Um, and as soon as I got up to take a look, because the guys on the apron were saying, holy crap, it's coming. And as soon as I got up, it was when it hit the North Tower. And I felt the concussion wave just go right through me. And I remember going outside to the apron, looking up and seeing a huge fireball, feeling the heat, the debris started raining down everywhere, and everybody that was on the street, all the civilians, started pouring into the firehouse because the doors were open. We're trying to get bunkered up, we're trying to get the rigs out, not run anybody over. Um, and we pulled out, we went around to West Street to the entrance of the North Tower. And we were the first units there. If anybody's ever seen the, uh, the French guys documentary they did, yeah, we were there before them. They like to say they were the first ones there, but they weren't. Um, going in, there's certain things that stick in my mind and I remember. One of them was when you went into the lobby, you had to go in through a little foyer. And it was like to stop the drafts and everything, I guess. And going in there, I remember stepping over two burn victims. I remember thinking to myself, like, how the heck did they fall out of the plane and inside the building? Not realizing that when the plane hit, there's some elevator shafts that come all the way down the lobby level, and jet fuel came down there and blew out the lobby. And that's how they got burned. The thing that sticks with me, though, one of them was dead. One of them was still very much alive, but clearly on her way to death. And I had to physically step over both of them in order to get inside. And that killed me. It took every, took every ounce of energy I had to step over this woman and not kneel down and help her, show her compassion, or anything. Um, but I had my job to do, and the medics had their job to do, so I stepped over them. And once I was inside, I saw glass everywhere. The marble that was on the walls was knocked in half and falling off. And then while we're in there waiting for our marching orders and other companies are coming in from all over the city, we started hearing crashes outside. So we started asking the brothers that were coming in, said, what's going on? I said, oh, they're, they're jumping. And at that moment, I'm like, oh crap. They're jumping to a certain depth. It's like, how bad is it up there? It's like, literally, I thought it was hell on earth up where the plane hit. And for those people who are jumping, that's exactly what it was. It, was a, it wasn't whether I was gonna live or die, it was how do I wanna die? And that's a horrible choice. 
And I probably would have made the same one. And all this time, I have one of the senior guys, Johnny Schroeder, standing next to me. And he's telling me, he keeps hitting me, Jimmy, Jimmy, it's bad. It's bad, Jimmy. It's bad up there. People are going to die today, Jimmy. People are going to die. I'm looking at him like, dude, you're a senior guy. You're supposed to be like calming me down. You shut up. <laughs> like you're just like amping me up even more. Once we left the chaos of the lobby and we got into the stairwell, it was like night and day. It was just pure chaos, everything going on in the, in the, in the lobby. Stairwell was calm, it was serene. Literally, there was one line of respondents going up, one line of civilians coming down. And the thing that struck me was the civilians weren't panicking. They were calm. They were coming down in an orderly fashion. You gotta remember, a lot of these people were there from the 93 bombing. So to them, this was like, okay, this is what we do, this is what we practice for. There would be injured civilians, and it'd be a gap, and other civilians are helping them down, and the ones behind them wouldn't push around trying to get through. They would wait, which absolutely floored me. They also offered encouragement on the way up. They would tell us, good luck, thank you, God bless you, um, and it was humbling. It really was because they had no idea what the hell we were doing when we got up there. Um, but we kept climbing. One of the guys in the company, or the other company actually, was having chest pains on the way up, so we kept getting delayed. Finally, we just let the medic take care of him. We started heading up. We got up to about the 23rd floor. We're going to meet our lieutenant, who was higher than us. And that's when the South Tower came down. We had no idea the South Tower got hit. Our radios were garbage. They didn't work. The cops knew. We didn't know. So we didn't get that message. We thought another plane hit our tower. That's how violently the building shook, the lights went out, the dust kicked up. Uh, so we looked at each other, all the guys in my engine company, and thank God we were on the same page. We all thought, let's get the hell out of here. Drop everything that wasn't attached, we'll pick it up when we come back up, because we're carrying over 100 pounds of gear. So we dropped everything, we started downstairs. Problem with that was, there was other fire companies that were standing fast or continuing to go up. And they would ask us, where are you guys going? We're evacuating. No, we didn't get any evacuation orders. Well, the cops did. Screw them. There was that little battle of badges, that little prideful thing. The pride kills, literally. Because every last one of those guys that were standing fast and going upstairs, they were all dead. I felt like an absolute coward going downstairs, but I'm alive. Um, so I'm very thankful that we're all on the same page. Going downstairs, I got separated from my company. Um, there was two very large Port Authority cops that came out from the floor with a very large civilian, and there was no room to get by on the stairwell. And I had to fight every urge that I had, because I didn't think this guy really wanted to live as much as I do, as I did. So I had to fight the urge to just climb over them, push them out of the way, had to wait my turn. Finally got down to the plaza level, which was above street level, where the globe was, and I didn't realize that the South Tower came down, but all the debris blocked the doors, so we couldn't get out on the street level. So we got out there, got out the north side of the North Tower. And I have a picture overhead, uh, an overhead shot of where I was and I was able to trace where I was. Um, Six World Trade had a unique outline and it also had an overhang. So when we got out, we went out underneath that overhang and we were still shooing some straggling civilians away. And after a couple minutes, I'm like, I gotta get the hell out of here. Because we would hear things whistling, coming down, hitting. I felt like it was on a movie set. It was all special effects. But at some point, I'm like, I'm done. There was nobody else coming. I started to take a few steps, and that's when the North Tower came down. It sounded like a freight train coming from far away. It was all the floors pancaking on one another, and it pushed all the air out of the building. 
I had no idea what was happening at the time. I just felt this huge gust of wind, heard the freight train coming. I'm like, oh, crap. The only thing I had time to do was get into a ball, get up against Six World Trade Center, try and make myself as small as possible. The debris started cascading down, and it started hitting me, and it started burying me. So my ankle, my knee, my shoulder. And every time something hit me, it was a little bit bigger. It hurt a little bit more. And I remember thinking, oh, crap, I'm going to die today. I'm going to get buried alive. So I started thinking about how that would be. How long will it take? We're going to suffocate, dehydrate. Then I thought about my wife. I was like, oh, she's going to be pissed. <laughs> she didn't want me to go. So she's going to kill me for dying. <laughs> and then the next thought I had, uh, that didn't spur me to action, but the next thought I had did. I realized how they were going to dig me out. I was curled up like a baby. I was like, man, they're going to dig me out. I'm curled up like a little baby in a fetal position. I was like, there's no way I can let them find me like this. So I decided to try to stand up. Thankfully, nothing was pinning me. I was able to stand up. I figured when I stood up, something would cut me in half or just crush me. At least it's a quicker death. I'm dead anyway, right? And they wouldn't find me curled up like a baby. Then I noticed that the window of six-wheel tray was busted out, so I said, screw it. Shook my legs, nothing was pinning me. I just dove. Had no idea if I was going down several sub-basement levels or not. Got hung up behind the windows, uh, underneath the windowsill. Everything kicked over, and then it stopped shortly after that. But now I was stuck in the middle of that stinking cloud. I had a flashlight on my bunker coat, and I turned it on. And I'm like, oh, crap, it's not working. So I just left it. Trying to get my bearings, and I couldn't. It was literally like somebody took, you know, I had the, the master electrical switch, turns off all the electric in your house. I felt like somebody took a master switch from all my senses and just clicked it off. I couldn't see, I couldn't hear. I could feel my heart pounding out of my chest. I couldn't breathe. Tried my face piece, but it just forced the air down into my lungs. So I did just did shallow breathing because the face piece was all covered with that fine, fine dust. And after a while, everything settled. And I was able to get my bearings and figure out, all right, I was still in the building, found my way out. And I realized at some point my flashlight was on. I was like, it's not on. I was like, man, I couldn't even see it like this far in front of my face. That's how thick that dust was. Eventually got out, uh, ended up at some point in the afternoon, somebody chucked me in the back of an ambulance because I was in shock, quite honestly. Um, and I ended up in a hospital way uptown in Manhattan. Later that night, my wife came and retrieved me. God bless her that she came all the way into Manhattan. Went home, kind of digested everything else that happened because I had no clue. No clue about the other planes, everything that happened, um, the magnitude of it. I just knew what happened right in front of me. I ended up with a diagnosis of acute stress disorder, which is a precursor of PTSD. Uh, I also had a little side dish of depression with that. My bride thought, because she was a lifelong believer, and she thought that this was my coming to Jesus moment. But in reality, it pushed me further away from Christ, if, it, if I could have been further away from Christ. One of those reasons was a good friend of mine, John Chipor, Chip. Our lives paralleled a lot. We were both Marine, cops, and firemen. He was a little bit older than me, so he did everything a little bit before me. Um, and he was a great guy. He never had a bad word to say about anybody. Um, I respected the heck out of him. Looked up to him, in fact. And he died in the South Tower. He never had a chance. That was the second one that was hit, but the first one he came down. And I thought, God, if you're real, why would you take him and not me? Why would you leave me here? He's a much better person than I could ever be. So it pushed me further away. The reality is that even as an atheist, God was preparing me for that day. And through Chip, 
was one of the ways. As I was processing going to the fire department, he stopped by the precinct one day, sat in my office, and he was in Beirut when they bombed the barracks. Never talked about it. I never asked him about it. But this particular day, he came, sat down, and out of the blue, started talking about it. I didn't ask him about it. It wasn't a conversation that led to it. It was just out of the blue. And he started describing to me how he was picking up his buddy's, his buddy's body parts. And when I look back, I'm like, oh man, it's like, that was preparation for what I was gonna see and have to do. God also prepared me when I was a cop by allowing me to get involved in peer support. I had training uh, through that that gave me tools to put in my toolbox where I recognized things that were happening to me long before I would have normally. And if I didn't have that training, I might still be dealing with it today. I know a lot of guys that are still in the middle of their PTSD from that day alone. Um, so I'm so thankful that God had, had me involved with that. God also protected me that day. As I said, I was in a particular spot and God moved me and then the building came down. The spot where I was standing, the overhead shot, this big gaping hole inside that building. So if I would have dove in at that particular point, I would have been crushed by the debris going right through the building. Just beyond, to the right of where I was, was another big gaping hole going right through that building. So God had me right in that sweet spot. God also healed me afterwards. He healed me through the resources I already provided through peer support. So I had access to trained peers, I had access to clinicians. Um, I did cognitive behavioral therapy for about a month or two just to get me back on track and then continued after that with the healing process. Uh, during all of that, I was being stirred and I was searching for something. I had no idea what. Because remember, I didn't have a foundation in Christ. I didn't know. When I was down at the site, I found comfort each and every time whenever I went to St. Paul's Chapel. It was the church that was on the outer perimeter of the site, and they turned it into a respite center for all the responders that were down there working through the whole time during recovery and cleanup. And every time I went in there, I felt peace. I thought, because I love American history, especially revolutionary history, and I thought it was because of where American history intersects with that, that place. That's where George Washington worshiped. And that's why I thought I found peace there. I know now it was because God was there. After 9-11, we did roll call outreaches to various precincts across the city because I was still involved with the peer support even though I was a hose driver, which was kind of funny. And I watched as I got to tell bits and pieces of my story. It broke down barriers um, with these cops who experienced a lot of the things I did. Uh, we would let them know about the resources that were available, what to watch out for. It provided hope. It also was therapeutic for me because the more I talked about it, I realized I was pulling the toxins from that day, from all that trauma. So I, even though it's hard sometimes in certain places, I love talking about 9-11 because I get to purge all that stuff and it doesn't keep a hold of me. Doing those things was the first time I realized that good can actually come out of bad. I never realized that before. Scripture's littered with it, but again, I wasn't a Christian, so I didn't know. Romans 8, 28. My absolute go-to verse. God works all things for, together for the good of His, uh, for our good and for His glory. Genesis 50:20. Joseph told his brothers, "What you meant for evil, God used for good." Romans 12:21 tells us to overcome evil with good. And what I try to live out every day through peer support is 2 Corinthians 1:4. Comfort others with the comfort that you've been given. 
got to pay it forward. I eventually retired, had kids, moved to Florida. Uh, my wife, lifelong believer, we needed to get her settled in the church because uh, she was absolutely miserable when she first moved here. We attended a local church for about a year and a half. I went as an atheist just to get them settled. My wife was happy because I was in church. Uh, my kids were happy I was getting them acclimated. And then as it led up to the 10th anniversary of 9-11, God did a whole lot of work. Um, he put a lot of people in my path, a lot of circumstances surrounding me. Um, and he used one lady in particular that opened my eyes, Mary Ganster. She has this ministry called Operation Safety 91. Print out Psalm 91 cards, hand them out to responders and military. Just open your eyes to the protections and love that God has for them. And I remember reading that card, and certain parts of it hit me right off the bat. You know, a thousand, uh, paraphrasing, a thousand, you know, fall at one hand, 10,000 in the middle hand, noonday. I'm like, it caught my attention just enough that it opened my eyes to everything else he was doing around me. One of the other things was that my wife asked me, like a couple weeks prior to that, if, we, if I would be okay doing a marriage Bible study called To Becoming One. I figured it can't hurt. It's like, you know, I don't believe in God, but whatever, it's not hurt my marriage. So I agreed to do it, but I wasn't starting until later on. I actually started the week after I came to Christ. Um, also, the church that we were at, one of the other things was the worship leader had an inappropriate relationship. I remember one day we went to church and the leadership came out, they stood on stage and they told the congregation about it. I did a video apologizing to the congregation. And I've been sitting there thinking, it's like, wow, this is transparent. It's like, this is awesome. You know, they're actually putting a junk out there. My wife was horrified. She's thinking that, oh my gosh, that's gonna push them further away. Uh, but the reality is I identified with it because I had my own struggles. Um, unconfessed sin from way back when. I made a deal with God in that moment because they said he's going to have a plan of restoration and he'll be back up on stage at some point. And I told God, I says, if you're real, put him back up there. <laughs> Several months passed. We missed the week of church because one of our kids was sick. We go to church the next day, so we missed the announcement that he would be back up on stage the following week. We sit down, and lo and behold, I see him up there. I'm like, <gasps> and I felt God tapping me on the back of my shoulder and say, okay, go move, punk. <laughs> and then he finished it off with we, I went on a, a trip the week before 9-11 up to retrieve the I-beam that's outside the fire headquarters in Winter Garden and I sat in the back seat on that trip with a, a now retired battalion chief from Winter Garden and he's a believer and he spent the first part of that trip telling me about a book he's reading Machine Gun Preacher <laughs> so, alright God I got the hint I got a hint it was on that trip that I orchestrated my baptism I reached out to the church. I told them, I said, I even put barriers to in front of God at the last minute. I said, look, it has to be at this service. It has to be the pastor or his worship leader that baptized me. Um, I said, okay, God, do that. A day later, God said, okay, done and done. Again, your move, punk. My wife knew nothing about it because I wanted to leave myself an out to the very end, just in case. That morning, we went to church. I excused myself, went to the back. She knew nothing about it. They played a video that they made um, because 9-11 on the 10th anniversary was on Sunday. And the next thing she knows, she sees the light in the baptistry, and I'm in there with the pastor because the pastor wasn't preaching. Huh, go figure. Um, she came running up like Bob Barker called the name on the Price is Right. <laughs> I'm looking for her in the back because that's where we sit, and she's right up front. She tells the pastor, Hold him down a little bit longer. Just make sure it takes. It did. 
So that story, my testimony, that gives hope to others in a lot of different ways. Um, one of the biggest ways is that my wife prayed for me and my salvation for 18 years. She was given during that time a prophetic word about my salvation and how it would happen. And after I got baptized and we got home from church, she went straight into the study and she opened up because she wrote it down. She never told me about it. She opened up the book and she let me read it. And what she had written is how it happened. My testimony is also a platform through which I can help others with their trauma. It helps catch their attention, it gains their trust, it gives me a buy-in. Let's others know that there is an end to the tunnel when they see me on the other side of it. It also glorifies God, shows only what he can do. It testifies to the power of his redemption, his restoration, demonstrates his great love and grace and mercy for us. I do have other testimonies, but in the interest of time, I want to kind of sidestep those. Um, some of you guys in the room know that, especially back in August, they touched upon it. There's promises in God's word about trust. Psalm 32, 10 says, Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, that's a, that's a go-to. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. There's so many good stories about trust in the Bible. 1 Samuel 20 is a story about Jonathan's trust of David and of God. David, if you remember, was anointed to be king by God. But he had to wait. He was anointed to be king over Jonathan, who was Saul's son. Jonathan trusted in David and God to the point where he gave up his physical signs of royalty, along with his weapons, to his friend David. They were given as gifts of covenantal friendship, and they were received the same from David. So they had a mutual trust. David trusted all throughout the Bible, too. I mean, he trusted God that he would give him the weapon to cut off Goliath's head. That was his own, cut it off with his own sword, which is amazing. He trusted with his kingship. He was anointed king, but he had to wait years and serve Saul for years, even when Saul wanted to kill him, before he would actually take the throne. God never commands us to trust him. We're exhorted time and time again to choose to do so. The same way that we have to choose to love, we have to choose to trust. Whatever you truly trust, you willingly yield and surrender control to We'll humble ourselves too. James 4, 6 offers up a warning for that. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All God wants from us is our love. For us to love him is to obey him, but we'll never obey unless we trust. We'll never trust unless we know. That's why it's important that we stay in the word. We do stuff like this, we fellowship, we sharpen each other. Do you ever ask yourself, though, does God trust us? Does God trust you? Trust a lot of people in the Bible. Trusted Moses to shepherd his people out into the promised land out of bondage. Trusted Job that he wouldn't curse God right through all of his afflictions. Trusted Mary would carry Jesus as an infant, would raise him. But God doesn't trust us as much as he trusts his son in us. What are some of the things that God trusts us with? His gospel, to share it, to spread it. He trusts us with the lost. To love them, to care for them, to witness and minister to them. And he trusts us with his gifts to us, a time, a talent, a treasure. Especially us men, we think of 
our abilities, our positions, our wealth, we kind of hold on to them instinctively. The reality is they're all gifts from God. We wouldn't have any of those if it wasn't for God's grace and mercy. He won't gift us with anything that he hasn't prepared us to use. And we're going to have to answer for how we use them, whether or not we operated uh, in them, doing his will, and blessing others with them. God trusts he's going to receive a return on his investment in us. That's in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. The one guy who hit it didn't get a return. He didn't get looked upon favorably by God. There's never any glory in us holding on to our salvation like that last guy. Only in obediently sharing with others, being vulnerable, do we get to glorify him with our stories, with our testimonies. That's how we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Our testimonies are wrapping around all that God entrusts us with. Nobody could ever take them away. It's how you get to show others how God's working in your life. We're going to be studying apologetics next year, which is great. But apologetics, you're defending your faith from, from, from a different angle. When you have a testimony that you share, nobody can ever take that away. Nobody can ever tell you that God didn't work in your life. All of us have multiple stories that God's given us. He's writing books on us throughout our lives. We have multiple chapters. All of these testimonies are for us to move through, not stay in. Uh, that's why whatever we did in the past that brought us shame or guilt or whatever, it's in the past. God's already paid for that through his son Jesus on the cross. Amen. There's brothers around us falling every day, even Christ followers. I fell away for a little while too, a few years ago. It sucked. Let me tell you, if trauma, addictions, infidelity, stress, isolation, pornography, it's just some a whole host of ways. They need our testimonies because it's through our testimonies that we get to operate in the gifts that God's given us as we share the gospel with them. It's also a unique entry into their lives from shared experiences, circumstances, and issues. I uh, have been blessed to be an agency trainer with the Sheriff's Office, and I get to talk on suicide, PTSD, and trauma, um, and God, Doctor was the first one to kind of open my eyes to this a while back. Um, God showed me that trauma and sin parallel each other. The enemy uses both of them for the same purpose. He works well on both of them. It causes a shame, guilt, remorse. We cycle around that coulda, shoulda, woulda stuff. It can send us to coping mechanisms where addictions are born, creating more problems. It causes us to withdraw into isolation. And that's where the enemy works best. He's just exposed and vulnerable to him. The book of Job, I view it as God's treatise on trust. In it, he gives us a progressive and personal revelation of himself, and our, of himself and ourselves. And it begets a lot of questions. Will you trust God with your pain? Will you trust his purpose in your trials, even when he gives Satan access to you? Will you endure those trials with joy and praise, trusting that God will make all things work out? And will you say, as Job did in 13.15, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Yeah. Our trials are the conduit through which our testimonies are born. Our testimonies help, share, help us share the gospel with others. So I would implore you each, everybody has a story in here to tell. Make it a point and decide to go tell it to somebody. Even if it's one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I remember, just as an aside, having lunch with Ollie. And I thought when I went there, because got the 9-11 thing, and I figured I'm going to be talking about it. And it was refreshing to have 
Watch what happened because I listened to his story, which is an amazing story. And I didn't have to talk about 9 11. And it was just, it was great to listen to somebody else's story. And that's what we need to do with each other, individually as groups. So I would, as we go forward, find somebody, meet up with them, tell your story, listen to theirs. And then once you're done with that, do it again. I appreciate you guys' time. I thank you for listening to me. I'm always amazed whenever anybody wants to hear anything <laughs> from me. I'm sorry I went a little bit long. <laughs> but I thank you guys, and who's taking over? I am. You are? Sorry.